The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. This morning our scripture is going to be uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. And if you could please stand for the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We thank God for his holy word. Good morning, everyone. Uh, you know, we always have the text of the, the specific verses we're going over on the screen, but uh, if you'd like to follow along beyond that, because sometimes I reference things before or after, and if you don't have your own Bible, we've got uh, blue Bibles in the back, or, or there's some white ones too, just paperback Bibles back by the, in the corner there. Feel free to get up at any time, grab one if that's helpful, and you can just keep it if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. So we are in, still toward the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' most famous sermon. And uh, before we get started, let me pray for us. Our great, majestic, merciful God, we thank you for the gift of being together this morning. We thank you for the gift of your word. These words that penetrate, these words that inform and shape and transform by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask for open eyes and open ears this morning. All of us are in different places. All of us have had different sorts of weeks. And all of us are in different places in our journey with you. Some of us have been walking with you for years and maybe take these verses for granted. I ask that you'd show us something new in them, that you would challenge us, that you would even jar us with what we see here for the first time. Others of us have only been walking with you for a short time, or maybe aren't believers at all. Lord, I ask that these words would draw people in. Show them what it means to follow Jesus. Show them the goodness of your path and cause them to embrace the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. 
So help us now, Holy Spirit. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Today's passage talks to us about the need for righteousness. Now, what do you think of when you hear that word righteousness? Is it a strong, positive feeling? Maybe like when you hear the word holiday or love or bliss. Is that what you feel, similar really strong, positive feeling when you hear that word righteousness? Or is it kind of a stodgy feeling, like when you hear the word vitamin or seatbelt or dry cleaning? Uh, my guess is it's, a lot of times it's that second set of words. Uh, it's, it's just a, lot of, a little stodgy for us. We, we like the idea of righteousness, right? Sure, just like we appreciate broccoli or a library card. It's certainly better than wickedness, but does it seem pressing or exciting for our lives? Maybe we have a hard time seeing what's at stake, so we're content to stay just a little bit drowsy toward righteousness. But Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, will have none of that. He's going to throw a bucket of cold water in our face and gather a people who are diligent for goodness, for purity, for holiness, because his kingdom is at hand. And the citizens of that kingdom are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And of course, if we want God at all, we will want righteousness. Because if you love someone, you start to love the things that they love. And when you love God, most of all, you don't just expect to receive his benefits without truly knowing him and being drawn to what he loves. But are God's people drawn to righteousness? Listen to this modern translation of Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. So in this section of Amos, God is speaking to his people, and he says, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your public relations and image-making I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want righteousness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. Well, today we're going to think about the righteousness that God wants from his people. And we're going to see righteousness that preserves Righteousness that shines, righteousness that fulfills the law, and righteousness exceeding that of the hypocrite. So that's kind of our outline this morning for what we're going to see. Righteousness that preserves, righteousness that shines, righteousness that fulfills the law, and righteousness exceeding that of the hypocrites. Now, last week's passage, which was the first 12 verses, we can think of that as sort of a poetic introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. It was a portrait of a certain kind of person with surprising and beautiful attributes. And so that portrait is kind of like the cover, the, the illustration on the front of this Sermon on the Mount that helps us to remember what this righteousness is going to look like in the complete person. It's not something sterile and removed. It's something gritty and compelling, and it's secured by the very promises of God. Well, before we get into Jesus' more specific teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, there's one more layer of introduction here 
that faces us this week. So these verses, 13 through 20, they're not a portrait like the first 12 verses, but they're more like a framework or like special glasses through which we need to see the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And those glasses are an understanding of the need for righteousness, the need for righteousness. Because only when we hunger and thirst for it, when we say, yes, I long to live the righteous life, then we'll have ears to hear and obey what Jesus says in those memorable sections after that. So today we're just trying to understand that framework so that we'll have that desire to understand all of the very practical applications that Jesus gets to later. So those first 12 verses from last week, the Beatitudes, they ended with, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So that picture of persecution, that might leave us wondering, should Christians just be content to be weird outsiders? You know, like separatists of a sort. And actually, nothing could be further from the truth. These next four verses show us that our Lord expects us to permeate society as agents of redemption. So verse 13 starts out, you are the salt of the earth. The emphasis is you, my followers, no one else. You are the salt of the earth. This is naturally who you are. Now, when we think about salt in the modern life, we usually think about its flavor. And so we might be tempted to think that this is saying that, you know, Christians are here to make things flavorful. And hey, I hope that's true in part. I mean, you may not always be the life of the party, but uh, hopefully the people we're becoming are compelling or inviting to to the people who meet us. But that's not what this verse is talking about mostly. See, in the time before refrigerators, salt was used primarily as a preserving agent. They would rub it into meat to keep it from spoiling. And you didn't need much. Just a little bit of salt would get the job done. So what this is getting at is that Christians are meant to have a preserving influence on society. And that says something first about society, right? This is what the Bible has to say about our world, that its tendency is toward evil and chaos. It's like meat that has a tendency to putrefy and become contaminated. And so this world has a desperate need to be kept whole and healthy through the use of a preservative or or a moral disinfectant. Now, many humanists think that things are getting better in the world, that there's this general tendency in life or in the human spirit to cause humanity to go upward in trajectory. But is that reality? I mean, haven't even just the past couple of centuries proven that we as humans tend to destroy and pollute and desecrate to a more advanced degree even as we become more civilized in other respects. I mean, look at all the mass shootings out there, right? The world left to itself is something that tends to fester. That's the, the curse of sin on our existence. But this verse also reminds us of God's compassion because God doesn't say, well, my people can live the good life, but everyone else, just let them stew in their moral filth, just let society at large rot. No, his people are given to this world to serve it, to nourish it, to help guide it, and to pray with their very lives, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So wherever true Christianity spreads, and I I do want to, clarify true Christianity 
wherever it spreads, there have always been major advances in literacy, in sanitation, in individual rights. Early hospitals and universities were all born out of Christian mission. There's not time to speak of all the contributions of Christians to art, science, social service, economics, politics. I mean, the value of the individual human life as a foundation for societal law, that's a Christian invention. If you're ever interested, a really fascinating book is How Christianity Changed the World by Alvin Schmidt. If you're a a history nerd, you'd enjoy that. Um, Our current culture doesn't recognize those contributions, those contributions that are still happening. Instead, Christianity is kind of like our culture's whipping boy. Um, But the fact of the matter is that the very standards that today's atheists use to accuse Christianity, those categories that they're using were in fact Christian in origin. Now, of course, this preserving function of the people of Jesus, it doesn't mean that the world will always appreciate our saltiness. That's, that's uh, for sure. One major current area of tension is that Christians insist on the sanctity of all human life, but a lot of our society has moved to sort of a stark utilitarian vision that says, no, it's only quality of life that matters. And so if a life is deemed to not be able to enjoy a certain quality, then it can and perhaps even should be discarded. Well, this type of thinking is is really just one step away from building gas chambers. But thankfully, adoption, foster care, Care for those with disabilities, suicide prevention, and palliative care are strongly pursued everywhere that the gospel of Jesus Christ has taken root. Now we should note how this salt takes effect. It's it's rubbed in. It's not just poured on top, right? We're not talking about preserving in some sort of remove method like being a, a prophetic commentator. Like, oh, it's Christian's job to stand back and say, nope, you're doing that wrong. Whoa, America, good luck with that decision. Yep, Church of Christ says you're really up a creek now. You know, some sort of negative public voice that spends all of its time just denouncing elements of our culture that are judged morally deplorable. Unfortunately, that's how a lot of people view the church. They see a slammed door, not an open one. Well, instead of pouring salt on the wound, I'm, I'm kind of mixing metaphors here, but instead of pouring salt on the wound, so to speak, we're to be salt ourselves that, that is rubbed in and put to the work of preservation. We do that with our individual lives, with our individual character, just being the person of the Beatitudes in each sphere in which we find ourselves. Then we're going to be standing in the gap wherever we find relationships broken wherever we find lies believed, people treated without dignity or creation mismanaged. So can you imagine how whole societies might shift, have shifted, if there's more actual Christians and those Christians take seriously this role as agents of preservation? But it doesn't always happen. And so Jesus asks the question, if salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Now, strictly speaking, salt can't lose its saltiness, right? Sodium chloride is a stable compound. But in Jesus' time, salt wasn't taken from salt water. It was taken from salt marshes, and so it contained a lot of impurities. 
And so if the salt was to leach out from that co the, the compound that included some less soluble elements, then what you're left with is just like this worthless residue. And if you try to use that to preserve meat, well, that would turn nasty. And if that's the case, well, then what do you do with such an unsalty substance that was wrongly called salt? You have no use for it whatsoever. Throw it out, trample it. So Christians are meant to be righteous in a way that serves to preserve society and benefit others around us, maintain that saltiness. Well, next comes a similar picture with a slightly different emphasis, that you are the light of the world. Now, when we think of light, what does that mean? In abstract thought, we associate light with purity, truth, knowledge, life, hope, revelation. Light is opposed to darkness. Light is opposed to ignorance. It's, uh, it, it transforms space, actually, because light exposes darkness. It exposes things that are hidden in the darkness. And so when Christians are serving as light in a place, it means that things like corruption and abuse and selfish and harmful practices of all kinds will be shown for what they are. Now often those revelations will be welcomed by society. A loving and involved Christian can, can often be appreciated and embraced by their community. Like you can think of um, you know, a woman who is sort of a mother for the whole neighborhood or that teacher who served as, as a mentor and confidant for so many troubled kids, or that, that guy in the factory whose very presence just seems to dispel slander and gossip, or your coworker in the office who is so personally invested in the lives of other people who are hurting. But the light that we bear, it, it goes deeper than that. It's not just about what's happening on the surface level. The light we bear, whether we like it or not, is kind of a searchlight. And it makes people realize not only the dark things around them, but also the darkness within. John 3.19 says, The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So our good news will often offend people because it makes a person face him or herself. But for others, that same light, it'll be, as it says in 2 Corinthians, God who said, let light shine out of darkness will shine in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what we hope for, so we pray for. This is really the purpose, as you can see in verses 14 through 16, that the church dispersed into society, it's like so many little lighthouses pointing the way to the safe harbor of our Heavenly Father's design and care. So it says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the goal. That's the purpose behind us as light. Now, if we're doing this right, if we're doing this rightly, it's, it's God to whom any glory should go. These are really big statements. You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. That might puff us up. Like, eh, I'm special. I'm salt. I'm light. Well, if you really are, then you're also not the focus because people are tasting through the salt. They're seeing through the light. This function requires humility. 
And Christians are at their best when they're honest and vulnerable about their own weaknesses, their temptations, their struggles and failures. Because when people see that we're able to go to those honest places within ourselves and we can face those problems and see those parts of ourselves redeemed through Christ, then that's compelling. But when we put on airs and we put up walls and we make people feel condemned and misunderstood and demand that they notice us and respect us, that is the furthest thing from salt and light. So what then are these metaphors really saying to us? Two things. First, followers of Jesus have serious influence on this earth for preservation and for illumination. It's not even saying try to be salt and light. It's saying you are. You can't help it. If you're a faithful Christian, your effect is huge, far more than you even know. As you hunger and thirst after righteousness, the way you interact with other people is going to be shocking and powerful and positive, even if it's characterized negatively by those whose deeds of decay are threatened by your presence. So Christians bear a righteousness that preserves the good in society and a righteousness that shines truth into dark places. But second, even though Christians by their very nature bear this righteousness, they constantly have to fight to the, the temptation to avoid notice. Christians have to fight that temptation to hide. You know, some people try to dodge rejection by being indistinct like kids in junior high, right? We, we do whatever we can to fit in. Um, but salt must stay salty, not full of impurities. And light must stay exposed, not hidden away. Some people avoid persecution by being like everyone around them. Some others avoid it by simply muting themselves whenever potential critics might be near. We forget that a city on a hill can't be hidden. In the ancient world, a lot of times cities were made of limestone. You look up on the hill, the sun's reflecting off of that, or even at night, you can see the lanterns burning in the windows. So taken together, this salt and light metaphors, they give us an instance of that biblical principle that Christians are to be in the world, but not of it. In the world, but not of it. Some of us, our lives are so hidden away from unbelievers that we're essentially nullifying our purpose, kind of like sticking a lantern under a bushel basket. Well, this passage is clear that we can't serve our purpose to give light to all when we're isolated, and we were never meant to exist in some holy enclave unto ourselves. So you need to ask yourself this morning, is there any way in which you need to get personally involved with neighbors, with coworkers? Is there a way you need to put yourself out there in the community? And stop hiding. Think about that. Write something down if you have a pen. And then on the other end, some of us are in the world, but we're living in a manner that's so contaminated that the effect of preserving salt is questionable at best. To ingratiate ourselves with others, we take on their identity, we excuse the same destructive behaviors, we laugh at things that are actually not funny at all. Uh, we participate in the same cycles of self-indulgence and self-pity. So let's also ask ourselves, can your effect among those who don't know God be called distinct at all? 
And if not, what do you need to change? Think about that. Type a note to yourself in your phone. We aren't called to withdraw from the world into holy huddles. We're also not called to belong to this world. We're called to occupy that difficult space in between, often enduring persecution, but often exerting great influence simply by God shining through our sincere and radically loving engagement with non-Christians. So even though the salt and the light are what Christians are by nature, you are the salt of the earth, you are light of the world, these pictures aren't given just to encourage us. but They're also given so that we can check ourselves. Listen to what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote in his classic work on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, they are watching us. Do they see something different about us? Are our lives a silent rebuke to them? Do we live so as to lead them to come and ask us, why do you always look so peaceful? How is it you're so balanced? How can you stand up to the things you do? Why is it that you aren't dependent on artificial aids and pleasures as we are? What is this thing that you've got? But when they don't see something different about us, Lloyd-Jones says, and buckle up for this one, There is nothing in God's universe that is so utterly useless as a merely formal Christian. I mean by that one who has the name but not the quality of a Christian. The Apostle Paul describes this when he speaks of certain people having a form of godliness but denying its power. They appear to be Christian but they're not. They want to appear as Christians but they're not functioning that way. This person has enough Christianity to spoil everything else but not enough to give him real happiness and peace and joy and abundance of life. And then listen to his conclusion. He says, I think such people are the most pathetic people in the world. Our Lord certainly says that they are the most useless people in the world. They do not function as people of the world or as Christians. They are not salt and light. As a matter of actual fact, they are cast out. Cast out, as it were, by the world and cast out by the church. What he means... And what this passage is getting at is that if you have a strong desire to be indistinct from the people around you and to hide what it means that you're a Christian, then okay, in the end, it'll be clear that you weren't one. The final verdict will be totally in line with what you have functionally desired. Nothing will have changed. The time for pretending will just be over. Now, if that troubles you at all, because it's not the conclusion that you want, then press into this identity that you say you have. And if you feel the temptation to hide or to blend in, realize how ridiculous you're being. Because it's in this real world space where our true identity gets proven out. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will I be ashamed when I come in my glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So we see that Jesus is really, really serious about our righteousness being something that is seen and that is at work in this world. And that leads to a larger discussion about his relationship with the writings of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call our Old Testament. That's what he means here in verse 17 when he says, the law and the prophets. He's referring to everything from Genesis to Malachi. So the question is, would Jesus change anything? Would, would what 
would he supersede those holy writings that came before? Would he come uh, kind of like the Buddha who responded to Hinduism or like Muhammad who responded to elements of Christianity and Judaism or Charles Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses? Would Jesus come like that and say something to the effect of, well, I'll give you the truer version of what was written before because it's been corrupted? And the answer is a resounding no. Do not even entertain the thought that Jesus came to abolish those words. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's not editing them down. He's not changing the wording. He's not adding to them in a way that changes their meaning, like just slapping on a Book of Mormon or something. No. He's come to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures according to their exact meaning. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, so not even one stroke from a written letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, why is Jesus talking about this? Based on the conflict that we see at work in all the Gospels, it's likely that Jesus is already, he's already being accused by the religious leaders of his day, accused of playing fast and loose with the scriptures and therefore condoning sin. Now, as we go along in the book of Matthew, we will clearly see that that's bunk, that Jesus cherishes the Old Testament. He obeys the Old Testament scriptures. He quotes from nearly every part of them. But what had happened is in the centuries after the Old Testament was finished after the last Old Testament prophet. It was 400 years in there. The rabbis had made all kinds of clarifying rules and stipulations, guidelines that were not Scripture themselves, but were declared to ensure obedience to Scripture. And so it's those man-made guidelines that Jesus frequently goes out of his way to publicly disobey. Now, why would he, why would he go out of his way to publicly disobey them. Doesn't he know that's going to make people angry? Well, yeah, but I don't know, maybe because it was fun. Have you ever purposefully messed with a self-righteous person's rules and then kind of watch them twitch? Um, I'm joking, mostly. Um, No, Jesus did it because there's so much at stake. So much at stake because when we emphasize man-made rules, we distort the actual word of God and we make it more about our own perceived righteousness than it is about the righteousness that he actually desires from the heart. So these words, starting in in verse 17, they're an answer, first they're an answer to the Jews of the day who are accusing him of neglecting God's law. But these words stand for us today as a challenge to Christians who, if we're honest, sometimes we want him to neglect the teaching of the law. Some of us, whether we say it this way or not, are of the mindset that Christ basically did away with our need to live out the righteous requirements of the law, that Jesus introduced grace in place of the law. Now, we've thought about the relationship between Christians and the law a little bit in our Exodus series, but now we need to think about it again because Christians can sometimes be overly simplistic in how we think about the law of God. We insist, like, doesn't the New Testament say we're not under the law but under grace? Yes. Galatians 3 makes clear we are no longer under the law for our justification. In other words, our salvation doesn't depend upon our law-keeping. But it doesn't release us from God's law as a rule of life. 
The Bible doesn't teach that law is opposed to grace. It's not. The Old Testament law was actually given as grace, as a free and good gift from God. So law is only opposed to grace in the sense that the Old Covenant was based upon our obedience to the law of Moses. But the New Covenant we're now under is is a covenant of grace based on the law-keeping of Jesus. But what does that covenant of grace, that free gift in this new covenant, do in us? What does it accomplish in us? Jeremiah 31 tells us, this is the covenant that I will make, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. So the cross of Christ didn't take away our need to obey the law of God. It made it possible Because now, with the Holy Spirit at the helm of our redeemed lives, the the law is written on our very hearts. It's not burdensome. It's not threatening. It's our very inner desire. Now, before we flesh that out some more, let's ask, what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets? It can mean at least five things. This This is a little complex. You don't have to remember all this, but I just want to go through it quickly. Uh, First, Jesus personally kept and taught the Old Testament law perfectly. He fulfilled it by being the one person to perfectly obey it and honor it. Second, the law would be fulfilled in Jesus because the law's prescribed penalty on lawbreakers is carried out in Jesus. On the cross, the penalty of the law for his people fell on him as their substitute But also, as risen king, he's carrying out the law's perfect justice on those who will cling to darkness. Third, Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament types and symbols related to sacrifice, temple, festivals, because they all reach their appointed goal in him. We saw this in our series through the book of Hebrews. Uh, Colossians 2 also says, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, it's no accident that the Jewish temple was destroyed by the Romans less than a generation after Jesus ascended to heaven. The temple's ending was God's exclamation point that these outward ceremonies had now been fulfilled in a living reality. Well, fourth, uh, Jesus arriving as the eternal king meant that the earthly theocracy of Israel, theocracy, like we live in a democracy Um, well, actually a republic, but democratic republic. Um, Theocracy is a a type of government, like Old Testament Israel, where quite literally God was ruler, okay? That's very unique. And um, that theocracy was absorbed by the kingdom of Christ that exists over all political nations. So the specific civic and judicial laws within the law of Moses are no longer relevant because we don't live in that type of government, even though the righteousness that drove those laws is still fully reflected in God's unchanging moral law. That's complex, I know. Fifth, most important for the Sermon on the Mount. Romans 8 says that Jesus' work on the cross made it so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So that's talking about what we mentioned earlier, the new covenant, the law is written on our hearts. So our obedience, our fulfilling of the righteous requirement of the law from the heart, that's one way in which Jesus fulfills the law. 
So Titus 2 put it this way, that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Note that word, lawlessness. That's what we're redeemed from. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay, that's a lot to take in. But what I especially want you to see for Matthew 5 through 7 is that the moral laws of God don't change. They reflect God's character, and God's character doesn't change. They're to be lived out, whether we're quoting them from the words of Moses or whether we're quoting them from the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount or any other teaching portion of the New Testament. So Jesus freed us from the penalty of sin, and he sent his spirit so that the law need not be some ominous burden over us but it's a source of life within us, just as depicted in Psalm chapter one. Okay, and keep in mind that this law can only be fulfilled in us because the law was fulfilled by Jesus. Nothing that the Sermon on the Mount is going to tell us to do can be lived apart from trusting in the one in whom the law of God is fulfilled. But if we're found in him by faith, then we can rest assured that this law will be lived out in us more and more all the time. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Verse 19, therefore, so because he came to fulfill the law, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches others to do the same will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there's two emphases here, obedience and teaching. Because Jesus came to fulfill the law, and part of that fulfillment is our living out this law by the Holy Spirit, therefore we need to do God's commandments and we need to teach God's commandments. If we do them but we don't teach them, well then eventually we won't know them and so we won't do them. But if we teach them and don't do them, well, then we're hypocrites, and um, that sabotages the project as well. We need to do them and teach them. Now, which commands? What's he talking about? He just said, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We teach our whole Bibles. We teach all of the Old Testament as relevant and to be lived out um, under correct interpretation, which Jesus gives us. So this is exactly why Jesus goes on to teach from the law. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's a teaching on the law. He's just told us to obey it, to teach it, and he's going to teach it. Everything Jesus is about to teach is in complete harmony with the contents of the Old Testament. But surprisingly, even though Jesus has, he's totally gone out of his way, we may feel like this is a detour, it's not, but he's gone out of his way to show that he's not in any way messing with what God has said before he ends this section in verse 20 by confronting the traditional religious leaders. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is actually the theme statement for the whole Sermon on the Mount. And there probably would have been an audible gasp in the crowd when Jesus said these words. What? The scribes were the ones who knew the law perfectly. They even made exact copies of it by hand. And the Pharisees, they were the ones who practiced the law most rigorously so that if they're not going to make it in, what hope do I have? Is this just the biggest bummer of a sermon ever? Is Jesus saying like, okay, those professional religious guys, they say jump. 
I say jump higher or else. Is that what's going on here? No, not at all. If you want to understand why Jesus says this, it's because he knows that the vast majority of the scribes and Pharisees were hypocrites who loved the appearance of righteousness more than righteousness itself. And just like we saw last week, there was a series of blessed are statements. Well, on the opposite end of Matthew, in chapter 23, we'll see a series of cursed are statements or woes. So he pronounces woes on the scribes and Pharisees because they don't practice what they preach and they exalt themselves and they shut the way to God in front of people's faces and they are blind guides who make silly rules about minutia and they care about outward, not inward cleanness. They diligently keep the letter of the law but miss the spirit of it completely. And so yes, you must be more righteous than that. And you will be. If you're a Jesus person, you will be. If you are poor in spirit, no longer living to prove your own greatness, if you mourn over your sin and that creates a meekness within you, if you hunger and thirst for inner righteousness and that longing causes you to show mercy to others also, if your heart wants God more than anything else and so you're willing to stand with Jesus no matter what, if you see the goodness of God's law and you yearn to live it out in your daily life, then you will have a righteousness that far exceeds most religious leaders. It's not law instead of grace. It's law fulfilled through grace. Jesus is saying that the proof of our having truly received the grace of God in Jesus Christ is that we are living a righteous life not just with righteous actions on the outside, but with righteous motives and attitudes on the inside. Now, in the next weeks, we're going to hear Jesus getting at the heart of God's law. He's going to look at things like anger, lust, divorce, promises, revenge, religion, our hopes, our fears, thoughts about others, our prayers, our sincerity. He's going he's to call it all into question. So we're going to have to have thick skin, people. But in John 14, he told his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, that was both a warning and a promise. You can read it either way, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The good news is that while we need to obey the commands of Scripture, we will want to. And we will, in Jesus, if we truly love him, he will fulfill these words in us by his Holy Spirit. And I'm excited for us to learn more and more how to invite that fulfillment of the law within ourselves. So Lord, we ask that throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount, you would be doing a really cool work in us, where we'd be able to look at our lives honestly, where we would um, not try to hide the parts that, that haven't, gone as they should where we have not reflected your character Lord we're not afraid of your spotlight anymore we invite you to search our lives and if there's anything unpleasing to you Lord we bring it we lay it down at your feet and um, we ask you to change us Um, we thank you that Jesus people aren't people who have never sinned but they're people who mourn over sin and move on to joy So, Lord, um, 
yeah, put, our, put our lives under the microscope. And we ask that as a result, we would see this righteousness developing us. We, we would see a righteousness that we never, maybe we didn't even want before, but now we have an appetite for it. And even if we wanted it, we were discouraged and we didn't even think it was possible, but we see it coming about in us through your Holy Spirit because of the new covenant, because you have fulfilled the law and now you are causing it to be fulfilled in your people. We submit to that process. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to change us for our joy and for the glory of Christ. Amen.